You're listening to another podcast from the Cloud Adventures portal. My name is Richard Morrell. Thank you for taking the time to download this file. So this is really a roundup of 2012. I had some great characters, a real motley crew of people on the podcast this year. We started doing these podcasts around July time after Summit, and it was very much an experiment. We'd never done podcasting before, or I certainly had never done podcasting before, knew nothing about audio, as you can probably tell by the quality of some of these podcasts. But we're learning on the job, and we seem to have got you know, quite a good following now. We now have over 42,000 downloads, which is a colossal number. Recently, we launched on iTunes and Stitcher. Many of you are listening via iTunes and Stitcher, and it's proved very popular. We've got a sort of 35, 40% exponential month-on-month growth since November. And that's good for the future, and it enables me to start getting some really good people in front of the microphone to talk about topics left, right, and center involved with cloud and emerging technologies. So today we're going to be listening to Malcolm Herbert, we're going to be listening to Matt Hicks, we're going to be listening to Steve Hardy, some of these people who really are intrinsic to where we're going in Red Hat and Cloud. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for taking the time to download and thanks for helping me find a a new niche in my resume that keeps growing month on month with all these new skills that I'm learning that I never thought I'd need. Thanks for being tolerant. Enjoy. I recorded this with Malcolm Herbert of Red Hat Europe. We're going to be talking about how we help customer organizations start to realize their own ambitions around cloud, how they get the best out of their platforms and their people when they're starting to think about those first tentative exercises around cloud and virtualization. So sit back and enjoy. And remember, the the Cloud Evangelist podcast and the portal are designed very much for you to help you get to where you need to go in cloud. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome to another podcast on the Cloud Evangelist website. I'm joined by Malcolm Herbert. Malcolm, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure, sure, Richard. Um, my name's Malcolm Herbert. Um, I'm the t- director of the infrastructure consulting practice within Red Hat in Europe, uh, with responsibility primarily around the Linux platform, virtualization, and increasingly uh, to do with private and uh, hybrid cloud development from an infrastructure operational point of view. So cloud computing, it's it's everywhere at the minute. It's becoming ubiquitous. Give us an overview from a standard operating environment as to why companies really now need to start thinking about getting their house into order when starting to think about contemplating building their own cloud environments. Okay, good point. Okay, so probably about 70% of the people we come to who have, we've, we've, we've spoken to existing customers, new customers, come to us saying, well, actually, we're considering cloud. But in most of the time, what they're considering is actually improving on what they have already in terms of their own data center strategy they had over the last three to five years. They've looked at a number of options around improving the efficiency, i.e. increasing their Linux install base, uh, increasing their provision for Linux, and increasingly an open source virtualization strategy, maybe around KVM. Mm-hmm. And they've developed basically uh, the, the understanding they need to actually in- improve dramatically the way they manage and provision the equipment they have and and the systems they have. And on their step to cloud, they need to think about things like, um, okay, how do I build, design, and deploy my Linux environments? How do I keep the version control in sync? How do I make sure my ISV certifications are up to date? How do I actually apply patches when I need to, if there's a security fix is released? How do I actually keep that all in check, but without employing, you you know, sort of one sysadmin for every 10 machines? And usually we find customers with 50 machines or 50, or, or 50 vert envi- machines in a vert environment have this tipping point where bespoke, hand-cranked, uh, op- different uh, OS builds doesn't work. And they need to look at standardization. Now, we're pragmatic. We, don't, we know that most customers can't have one 
build or environment for everything they're going to run. Now, some customers can do that, and we've got customers who've got maybe 12,000 machines built on exactly the same OS base with what we call the infrastructure elements, such as backup software, monitoring tools, and the monitoring tools to monitor the monitoring tools in some cases. So they have this environment, they can do that with a single platform. Now, what they're thinking around about cloud is to make that even more flexible, and really what they're talking about is both private cloud and this stretch to hybrid cloud. And so what we're saying to them, well, you need to look at where you are now. And so we've got a model based around level zero to level four of where they assess where they are in terms of their readiness for standard operating environment and for cloud. That's, that's the primary work that we're doing now. And if, let's say in level zero, you'll have automated provisioning, some sort of network install, uh, Anaconda-based kickstart installer, which most people from a Linux point of view have done from DVD or network install for the last you know, five, seven years. Or longer. Or, or longer or longer, yeah, absolutely, yeah, it could be, yeah, well, okay. Uh, some, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But uh, in terms of the other thing, um, that what we see, and then in the level four, you might see some form of automated elastic capability for spinning up new vert environments. I, some of the level four will be some of the, what we see is the key true cloud functionality, some things like auditing or accounting purposes for cloud. Level two, level three, in the middle ground, we're looking at more sophisticated build automated updates uh, things like ISV certification, um, things like capacity planning is where a lot of our organisations need to have some provision for capacity planning as well. So we, we'll, we're, what we're trying to do now is we're spending some time with some of the key enterprise customers, a um, whole range of sectors, uh, financial services, oil and gas, you know, the whole retail, and we're trying to work out where they are on that and then define a cloud roadmap for them. So do you find sometimes you're actually managing the level of ambition for these customers as well? Um, I think we're actually starting off. The first thing we do, uh, we've got this uh, cloud workshop. Uh, it's a formula program that we put together. It's a cloud enablement workshop, which is primarily aimed at hybrid cloud. Most of uh, sort of CIOs, CTOs, have feel they've got to push towards cloud, even driven by their business, their customers. But what they really need is some sort of improvement of, of automated efficiency. We're not saying they have to make any cloud technology decisions now, but they need to be ready to give themselves some flexibility to do that and leave themselves open for that. So what the workshop we're doing with them is firstly to understand where they are. So in this, in this sort of triagram chart, we, we work out where they are, and then we'll give them a decision tree of what they can do next and give them the best options. So yes, there's no yes or no, it's not a black and white, it's yes more likely to or less likely to, or we don't really need things like elastic capability, or we're not actually going to do any form of internal billing. And we work out where they're going to go based on where they are now. Do you see many customers now who are starting to think about uh, migrating some of those traditional AIX and HPUX workloads into a Linux environment for, for cloud infrastructures? Uh, or? So the, the good point is interesting because a lot of people in a lot of markets thought that whole AIX market, AIX to Linux, Unix to Linux is dead. We've done it all. Okay. Now, the surprising thing for me, having been with Red Hat for 10 years doing this sort of stuff, that we moved AIX machines 10 years ago, we moved HPX VMS machines over the last few years, and I thought we'd done a lot, okay, and I thought all the customers are going to Linux have come to Linux. However, I think there's been even more understanding now that actually the benefits of cloud actually are bringing the last vestige of the people. There's other things, other factors are there as well, increasing hardware costs, uh, the demise of the vendors like Sun and others. These, these guys, that it's not a viable solution anymore. So yes, there is a move from the Unixes to Linux, not just because of cloud, though, for other reasons, over cost saving. Uh, you've got to remember, the big advantage within Linux and in the sort of a Linux-based or a cloud architecture, a lot of the tools they've paid for extra over the years, whether that be file system, cluster management, are all bundled in. It's all part and parcel of the product. Mm -hmm. So this layer of, on top. Now, okay, and this is probably what we say is the infrastructure in the OS layer and the vert layer. 
they're the big drivers at the application level you know the big databases and everything else yeah okay we're not necessarily seeing that people are still very wedded to that however we're seeing systematic changes around storage we're seeing systematic changes around database or data storage or unstructured data which may change that as well so that's actually going to drive more people away from the need to run those big budget you know sort of 30 percent of your budget on one software license type options as well and so people are going to move so we've talked about HPUX, we've talked about Solaris and AIX. I, I also see an opportunity where customers traditionally have looked at um, looking at Linux purely as a LAMP stack. You've been with Red Hat now for 10 years, so you've seen us emerge from being a pure OS player and now building the second house of Red Hat around cloud-based technologies. As we move into this next level of maturity, where do you see the consulting services side of Red Hat going? Because very often we're seen very much as helping, you know, as, as being the helping hands in, in order to, to try and nurse the ambitions of the customers we've already discussed. Yeah, okay, yeah, so the, the days, everything's far more commodity now. We don't do the installations on product we used to. You know, we yeah. don't go in and do basic OS stores. We don't do a whole load of things. But what we are seeing, though, is we're doing more around the architecture and design to make sure that the, the experience and expertise Red Hat have about doing that type of work get put into um, actually helping other people design the solutions. So we can go to customer A, we've done quite a lot of work with them in terms of using their expertise as well, mm -hmm. actually we've put stuff, we may have open sourced some ideas and designs, there's a number of, for example, a whole set of scripting around the Red Hat Network API, some stuff around puppet scripts and stuff around SOE automation, and some of the leverage now into the Rev API mm. uh, around cloud and, and probably into cloud forms as well, which is going to mean that actually we're actually make it's like if you're building a house, okay, the vendors normally provide the sure. bricks, and we're we're actually putting the mortar and putting the bricks in the right place, yep. and, we're add, and we're adding windows and doors and actually making the thing usable, um, but not but also we're trying to do that for a predictable price, predictable cost. We're not saying every, to everybody now that Red Hat has their cloud solution for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, there is a, we've got a very good basis, we've got a very good strategy around cloud forms and the architecture that we're coming up with. Um, but we're not saying that necessarily is going to fit everything. There's no way, there's no one vendor who can claim to be the one point of contact for cloud. Now, they can't do that, no. they can't predict that, but they've got to be able to interoperate what's coming up down, the, and whether that be you know, the whole, whole whole host of things in terms of that. And do you find the interoperability thing is quite key in the respect that so many companies have got issues like identity access management, storage, mm -hmm. the whole gamut of IT responsibilities within the whole governance risk and control piece. And is that a, 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 an area where Red Hat can lend expertise to help? Uh, we do do. Well, yes, true. Uh, I think we're focusing very much on two things, really. Firstly, we're still getting involved in the bottom up, the techie solution solving around the product set that you may have and whether that be cloud forms or even OpenStack or Puppet or any of those things from a from an operational point of view. Now we're also doing stuff on the dev side. We're building a lot of portals, front end portals for, for cloud. And we're also doing something around ERP and some of the other things that are beginning to happen that we're seeing sort of more software application level driving driven, driving cloud i pulling cloud solutions as a result of the application requirement mm -hmm. rather than just driving it from ops point of view. So that's the one side. Uh, the operational build-up and, and the sort of technology. The other thing is on the strategy side. And the Red Hat consulting team globally now, we have a specific cloud practice. We're doing more about, uh, we've got an RFI, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, return on investment uh, calculator. We're doing some round of TCO studies as we did with Unix to Linux three to four years ago. Mm -hmm. We're now doing those on, on, you know, move to cloud, you know, from, you know, metal to cloud type, you know, sort of st strategies as well. 
those are far more subtle costings. Um, it's, it's, it's the whole life cycle piece, though, isn't it? It's not just understanding how you get there. It's understanding, you know, the management, the repudiation of data, the whole, the whole gamut. Well, in, absolutely. And interestingly enough, I had a great meeting about three or four months ago and with, with a, basically a CTO of an organisation who understood the biggest cost for him in his future cloud strategy would be his exit cost not just from where he is now, but his exit costs from cloud if he to try to change vendor. Mm. And he wanted to make sure that was zero. Now, that's what everybody's been saying about cloud exit, but I don't currently see that because nobody's really exited their existing cloud provider. Yet. Until they've had to. Yeah, and the <laughs> fact is, that the good news was he understood that. And what we're trying to say overall is we don't want the fourth layer of lock-in. We've had it at the OS, we've had it at the hypervisor, yeah. and we've had it at various applications. You know, you know, as we know, there's, you know, there's a database lock-in for most people in, the, in big enterprise space. What they shouldn't be doing is doing that at the cloud level. Okay. These are all key things that we're trying to make sure during the assessment that doesn't happen. Malcolm, thanks very much for taking no time. Problem at all, to talk to me. No problem at all. No problem. Thank you. I'm joined today by Matt Hicks. Matt, introduce yourself. Hey, Richard. This is Matt Hicks, and I was one of the founding members of the OpenShift effort at Red Hat, which is Red Hat's platform as a service, and spent a lot of years in IT roles and development roles before that, but now these days it's... A lot of time in, in platform as a service and working in the cloud. It's interesting. If you were at Boston in, at the summit earlier on this year, you'd have seen people queuing out the door to hear Matt talk. So I don't know how you get so many people in a room, dude. Genuinely don't. <laughs> Especially when it's such a boring topic. No, joking with you. So OpenShift PaaS, OpenShift hosted PaaS, on-premise PaaS, it's it's the buzzword du jour. I've been at VMworld in Barcelona, and I was over at the Giga Home Structure Conference with Brian Stevens last week and Chris Wells in Amsterdam. And everybody wants to talk to us about hosted PaaS. It seems to be this differentiator in the respect that people have been using OpenShift on Amazon, the three clicks to cloud model. It's really got a lot of people very excited about how they move their applications to cloud. And from a development perspective, from a developer perspective, we've you know, enabled OpenShift Origin earlier this year where you can stand up your own hosted PaaS on a laptop from a purely non-supported model. You know, the juices are running. You know, people are really excited. What, what's the latest? Well, you know, I think the next progression for us is, and we announced this at last summit, but we're really aggressively working towards moving from just a open source project where you can install the code that we've done on your own environment to really moving to a supported product distribution from Red Hat, where you can take the, the same bits that we use to power our host service, which now has been in operation for almost two years at this point. We have a ton of applications running on there. You know, we've, we've really gone through where we wanted to work in the public cloud and show that, that we could do that with the software base. Right. But now the next move is for us to make sure that we can have a rock solid distribution for customers that aren't ready to move to the public cloud yet, but they want to be able to bring something into their own data center that they know gives them eventual portability into the public cloud, whether yep. that's on the bits that Red Hat is running or um, the bits of somebody else's that's based on OpenShift. There is a, a school of thought which says that everything that Red Hat do from a rel perspective has to be rock solid and stable and there was this sort of push around Summit this year saying why haven't you done it yet I'm trying to explain to a lot of people that OpenShift on Amazon 
although very stable and very secure, was built on latest, greatest sources, so latest versions of Perl, Python, Ruby, etc. And if you were to do a diff compared to a rel tree, you would see that you know, we're using conservative, stable, supported versions of it. It's not that easy to just backport everything to put it into a supported distribution where, you know, essentially you're not just running up a Linux ISO image, you're actually running up a development environment which will be hosting applications live. You know, it, it's yeah. you're not just standing up a, a Linux distribution to do a basic LAMP stack or whatever you're doing. You're actually putting up a tree which is going to be hosting your applications, your data, uh, and all your privileges. So you know, we we've got to get this right first time. Yeah, I I completely agree. You know, we spend a lot of the effort that goes into making this a product distribution for us is making sure that all of the bits and all the dependencies have that same quality and and testing and stability that customers are used to with RHEL. And for us, that, that's been a really tough balance to strike of. We know from the hosted service that developers want latest, greatest, latest, greatest of yeah. everything. But at the same time, we have to balance that from the development and proof of concept need to what is really required in production. And what are, what are the operational guys? You know, they, they probably want some newer versions but they want to be able to have it built and have a company stand behind that where they can really trust those uh, the support of those versions and that software. But I also think it's a differentiator between us, like between us and Heroku and Google App Engine in the respect that this is open, that we are essentially showing people what's under the hood. Yep. Well, and it's, I think that's where we'll really build ecosystem at that point because you know, obviously, Red Hat. We spend a lot of time on the core engine that's behind OpenShift, and and the core engine itself is is open source as well. We have, you know, basically anybody can put in pull requests. It's based on GitHub out there to be able to change and influence various things. But where I really see the ecosystem evolving is in other people developing cartridges and developing quick starts and things that. Don't, they don't necessarily have to learn all the ins and outs of the OpenShift engine, but they can take their own software that they're passionate about, package it up on OpenShift, and be able to have it run in these environments. Because we we do have a hosted service now with a lot of reach, which is pretty exciting. And OpenShift Origin has an open source project just starting to build more and more reach. And And then the third component of that is when Red Hat has a supported distribution of OpenShift as well. Yeah. Uh, it really has a nice vehicle for whether it's ISV software providers or just other open source projects to be able to get their software running in that environment in a very standardized way and be able to get it in front of a lot of users. It's interesting. When you look back through the mists of time, um, and we've talked before in the past about our open source routes and you know the first distributions that we use, the Calderas, the the original versions of of, of Red Hat and Rel. And you look yeah. back to how people try to make things easy with Webmin and PHP MyAdmin, where we were really just scraping, scraping the you know the the top, where people who didn't want to work at the CLI had the ability to have some web-based front end to be able to do DHCPD config or to install packages or to stop and start Samba or to do configuration changes. And you look at the time change, the time difference between then and now, 
and the ability to now manage your whole enterprise essentially through a web-based interface and to be able to do all that granularity of reporting and you know multi-honed enterprises across clusters you know and across across territories it's absolutely amazing what we've achieved in such a short period of time in technology isn't it and i think red hat's really been at the at, at the cutting edge of that it, it is i've you know i've spent really the last decade practically in IT and in, in very in a lot of cases in very traditional IT environments where you're racking, stacking, you know, machines and um, data center based deployments all the way up to where virtualization started to take hold and then infrastructure as a service really started to take hold. And so it, it does amaze me as I watch the progression of what's possible now from you know, the issues that you had to deal with when you were managing your own data center and then how much infrastructure as a service start to simplify that. But then you move to, well, you know, the provisioning aspect is simpler, but now you still have all the application complexity. And yeah. I think PaaS is able to make that same mark there where you're able to standardize your application processes to an extent where you're really starting to get closer and closer to that dream state where you know, think up an idea and you can execute it as fast as the business wants you to. I know, and I, th I think there's also changes in the roles and responsibilities in IT departments globally now because demarcation lines are becoming really blurred. Yeah. You know, the, the developer has much more power. He doesn't have to have, you know, those change controls, those network requests, someone to open up a port, someone to stand them up in Oracle environment because it's just there. It's a virtual instance he can spin up by using this hosted power solution. It's going to feel, make some IT managers feel very insecure. Yeah, no, I, and I think that is the balance of I think the IT shops that embrace it are, are really the ones that are going to you know lead their companies and their you know, respective business units into into the next generation of IT. And I think those that that resisted and want to hold all of the control aspect. I think it's eventually going to topple just because people are starting to see the progress and the, the momentum that can be made if you're utilizing stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it, I was trying to explain to someone the other day that it's the difference between moving from netware to Linux. You know, if you want to be left behind in an IPX stack, good for you, <laughs> but we moved on. So, keeping the OpenShift message secure. There's a lot of stuff underneath the hood that helps the whole equation stay nice and safe. So we have SVIRT and we have SE Linux, and we've got a, a lot of good technology and good people in in Red Hat who are working very hard to make stuff happen, open SCAP, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to me about your thoughts around the use of SE Linux, especially in cloud and virtualization. Yeah, so, you know, for us, one of the things that that we started really early on with platform as a service is how we could better leverage SE Linux. And, and even my experience with SE Linux, when you're newer to the technology and you're in a very traditional IT environment and you're trying to build your own custom policies to lock down unstructured environments, it can actually be pretty daunting and difficult. You know, SE Linux works extremely powerful, but it works at a really low level. Yep. And so when we started to design how we thought platforms as a service could work, one of the most powerful things was it is a standardized environment again. And so we wanted to change the security model from you know, the old security model of 
plug every single possible hole that hackers could find, you know, which is sort of my uh, oversimplified view of discretionary access control, and actually move it to a mandatory access control where we know what these applications should be doing, mm -hmm. and we should be whitelisting the functionality that they should be doing so that you can actually sleep at night a little bit of if somebody, you know, if a behavior isn't supported, it's going to be blocked by default. And to do that, we utilized SE Linux and built custom policies in terms of what we think are, you know, the 80% of, of things that applications are going to need to do in a PaaS. And we've open sourced those. Those are in Fedora and also in OpenShift Origin. Mm -hmm. And but the best part about it, because SE Linux is extensible, if our 80% doesn't fit your use case that well, you can extend it and lock it down even further, or you can override things and, and open up some more flexibility. But the nicest part is it's finally moving us out of this mode of having to find every single backdoor and loophole that people are going to exercise yeah. um, against your applications. I don't get tetchy. I, I think tetchy is the wrong word, but I do. My eyebrows twitch when I stand talking to IT administrators and sysadmins who say, yeah, we turned SE Linux off by default. And I'm thinking, great, well, obviously you have a huge amount of time on your hands to just walk through syslogs, and you also have, you must have some really nice Perl scripts running, going through cron jobs, looking at logs and understanding, or you've got some third-party hardware sitting on your platform doing intrusion detection or snort is your friend and it just seems to be the fact that i think they think that it's making them more work than it is and i think it's just a lack of understanding yeah i we i dealt with this all the time where when we first started openshift origin we didn't put in the more complicated policies that we thought people should be using because our first goal i would joke about it in conferences but my first goal was I just didn't want you to run set and force zero. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, unless you know what you're doing, where you're really going to try to run things through and see, you know, what's getting blocked. But, but getting out of that default of turning it off was one of our first goals. And, and, and for us, that's meant, you know, we're trying to make the use of SE Linux in OpenShift a very natural thing where people don't, they aren't seeing it block random things. And I actually think SE Linux has progressed a phenomenal amount over the last few years. Yeah, over the last three or four years, it has. It's become, well, I wouldn't say stable. It's become more accepted, and the templates have been you know, more user-friendly, yeah. and the ability to be able to do better log file analysis and better audit trails, it's just there. Yeah, I, I think if people can break the habit of turning it off, they will not really notice that it's on anymore. Yeah. But they'll notice that it's on when it counts. Yeah. <laughs> they just won't notice that it's on when it's causing a pain. It's like, it's free. It's there. Why don't you just turn it on? Oh, because it creates me more work. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Okay, so I did a, we did a podcast uh, about four months ago with Daniel Beranger, who's doing a huge amount of work with the OpenStack team under Brian Stevens with Esfert. Um, we went to the London OpenStack Consortium. I think it was their kickoff meeting, and he was explaining to the crowded room what expert gave them from a from a, a segregation and separation perspective and i think the penny was starting to drop about why se linux and esper are important and i keep trying to explain to people who are using vmware or hyper v where they're standing up their instance and then having to think about securing it 
rather than when we, we, we kick off KVM, which is secured within the kernel. And you have the benefits of SE Linux providing that jail-treated segregation around that instance. And I think that maybe, you know, we need to bang that drum a little louder sometimes because, you know, there's still a lack of lack of awareness in the proprietary community that they think that security is something that you fit by retrospect, not mm-hmm. by uh, aspect of design or, or, or the point of provision. So I think that's maybe something that we need to write white papers about and be uh, I mean it's security's not a sexy topic I've I've been doing it for 10 and a half 12 years now and you know it's it's not a turn on for most sysadmins and most IT directors or CIOs it's more something that they a bitter pill that they have to swallow and I think that we need to we need to start saying to people a little bit more aggressively you know this stuff will get you out of jail or keep you out of jail let's not work out what happened let's work out what didn't happen there's and, not there's not know, there's nothing more boring the, than looking at an empty log file. Yeah. Well and you know, you look at the how multi level security has improved over the the last couple of years where <clears throat> you can have SE Linux based security at the virtualization layer. You can have SE Linux based security at the container layer. Uh, you can have SE Linux based security at the host layer. And on top of that, you're still gonna have additional layers of security, but it's just that mindset of getting it to setting it up from the beginning and having those layers of security in place is going to save you so many issues down the road of you know trying to deal with with an exploit or um, you know or just various things. I think it's a great practice for people to really start readdressing and figuring out if they're using all the things that they could um, from the get go. Okay, Matt. I've really enjoyed doing this podcast with you. We tried to do this a couple of weeks and technology let us down or more. I think build, build, building contractors let us down. So I'm yeah. grateful for you having made the time out of your day to do it, especially with the time difference. Uh, I'm going to disappear off on honeymoon. You're going to be uh, published by a Perl script, which probably will make your eyes twitch, but there you go. I'm very grateful. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Richard, and enjoy the honeymoon. I'm going to try. I'm going somewhere where there's no TCP IP or 3G. I'm going to be very, very itchy. It could be the shortest marriage in history. Thanks, guys. Hi, you're listening to another podcast from the Cloud Evangelist website. My name is Richard Moran. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Hardy. Stephen is one of the lead developers on the Heat API project, which Red Hat and, and others are contributing back into the OpenStack project. Stephen, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi Richard. Um, my name's Steve Hardy. Um, I'm a software engineer working at Red Hat in the cloud business unit. Um, I'm primarily involved with um, OpenStack-related technology at the moment, and as you said, um, my main responsibility is working on the um, relatively newly um, created Heat project. So do you want to tell us a bit about what Heat actually is? Yeah, sure. So um, Heat is basically um, an orchestration project for OpenStack, and so it provides functionality which is quite similar um, and in many cases compatible with um, AWS cloud formation. And so what that basically gives you is the ability to specify um, a cloud application which could specify multiple resource types, which could be instances, um, load balancers, um, database services, um, storage, that kind of thing, and you can combine them and specify dependencies between them and uh, configuration, that kind of thing, in a JSON template, um, which is 100% or we're working towards 100% compatibility with the Amazon CloudFormation template format. Um, so that effectively allows you to orchestrate um, deployment of you know, 
quite complicated um, cloud applications um, without a whole lot of bespoke scripting around uh, you know Nova API and that kind of thing. So it's it's bringing some context maturity towards OpenStack with regards to Amazon, and I noticed as well it's published under the ASL. Is there a reason why that is, or? Um, so, well, basically, we're um, trying to align with um, existing conventions for core OpenStack projects. So, we've been uh, we've proposed um, uh, incubation, an application for incubation, and um, that's uh, being discussed at the moment. And so, wherever possible, we've really tried to conform to um, existing um, code style conventions and licensing conventions in terms of uh, the core OpenStack projects. Um, we've also tried to, um, you know, leverage existing code in um, OpenStack Common. And uh, really, just trying to fit in um, and become, uh, you know, a part of the OpenStack community rather than just um, yeah, leveraging yeah, yeah. what's there. Yeah. And so you're going to have. I mean, I'm presuming it's going to be like sort of end-to-end complete integration with uh, Common, Glance, Swift, Nova, Keystone. You know, across the whole OpenStack gamut. Yeah, so I mean, we've already got quite a long way to, to, towards um, accomplishing that. So uh, we basically use JEOS images, which are stored in Glance, and we launch those using um, Nova. Um, we have uh, a, a, an S3 um, resource type, which basically uses Swift. Um, we have um, a block storage um, uh, resource type, which uses um, Nova volume slash Cinder. And um, so we're already um, t- providing a fairly um, easy way to glue together a lot of these um, existing OpenStack serv- services slash projects. And how easy has it been to do all the integration with things like CloudWatch? Because that API is it's not as well documented as it could be. Well, I mean, we've got a basic CloudWatch functionality, which um, I've been working on myself uh, recently. And uh, we've got um, the CloudFormation, which is the orchestration API, um, is more or less feature complete with respect to um, the Amazon API. There's also an OpenStack-specific REST API, which is aiming to be, in a similar way to Nova, provides the EC2 API and also right. the OpenStack native API. Um, it potentially could be a cleaner in- interface, and it's a lot more aligned with uh, actual uh, existing OpenStack conventions. But the CloudWatch API, um, we've got a partial implementation, which is based on um, some work which was... Uh, added in order to support um, HA and auto-scaling features of Heap. Mm. And so what that basically provides is um, metrics from within the instances. You have an agent on the instance which reports back to the Heap engine. And um, we have put a CloudWatch API on the front of that. So that's not fully implemented yet, but we're aiming to provide um, a a much more complete CloudWatch API in due course. Um, But there's some complexity in terms of the underlying infrastructure, which we're still working on. And looking ahead at further releases, um, I noticed when I was looking through some of the release notes last night that hopefully, you know, 18 months, a year's time when it gets towards G release, some integration with Quantum as well, which I think is going to, you know, really add some nice features and functionality. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's probably our biggest um, gap in terms of parity with AWS resource types at the moment is the, you know, the VPC, the virtual networking um, components. And as you say, as soon as we get quantum integration uh, underway, uh, we should be able to close that gap. Um, I think in many other areas, we've got, you know, quite quite good parity in terms of compatibility with um, Amazon resource types. Well, you've already got the support for things like instance auto-scaling and high availability, et cetera, et cetera. So th- from, a, from a maturity perspective, you know, considering Heat API hasn't been around very long, you know, it hasn't, it's gone from zero to here pretty quickly. 
Well, I mean, there's there's some quite cool features. I mean, the, the, you, you've got the orchestration aspect where you've got a single template um, way of, uh, of specifying potentially complicated um, cloud deployments. You can have nested templates, which basically allows you to break down the complexity rather than having one enormous template. Mm -hmm. You can have a number of um, smaller templates which are effectively included as resources in um, in a top-level template. Um, and in addition to that, um, you've got uh, auto-scaling, which allows you to specify a group of servers within certain limits that are scaled up and down um, based on CloudWatch metrics, which we collect from either the instances or, say, if you've got um, a load balancer resource and then you've got a number of web servers behind it, you can collect metrics from on the instances and the load balancer. Um, and then HA, as you mentioned, we've got a couple of different flavors of HA which we support. One which is basically service level HA, where you can basically do um, a restart of a service up to a number of uh, maximum times uh, if it fails. So say your HTTP daemon fails, we'll mm -hmm. try and restart it. And if it fails three times, we'll rebuild the instance. Um, and then the other type is a heartbeat-based um, instance HA, which can effectively allow you to do heartbeat-based uh, stack or instance HA, where if uh, you lose uh, network communications with an instance, you basically rebuild it. It's all pretty cool stuff. I mean, from a security perspective, it supports all things like the OpenStack security groups, etc. Or um, so, yeah, I think there is some limited support for. Um, yes, we do support security groups, and uh, uh, that's tied into. Um, uh, 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 we, we we do support security groups. I'm not that familiar with the exact implementation. Of I mean, the, the, the only reason I bring that up is with my security firewall head on. It's the fact that one of the cool things about AWS is the fact that you know it, it, it makes a security order earn his living in the respect that he has to prove what happened in the past rather than what's happening now. And it would be nice with you know the fact that we we're working with the Red Hat uh, preview release of the unsupported OpenStack based around Essex. As we move through Fulsom, you know, it's just demonstrating some of the, the thought leadership and maturity that we're trying to help bring to the already, you know, erstwhile OpenStack community out there who are working so hard to get the next Fulsom release out the door. Yes, I mean, we've had some discussions recently um, with the uh, Keystone developers um, related to um, security concerns in terms of in-instance monitoring, which is yeah. obviously something we're already doing, and uh, we're trying to improve the way we do that such that it's done more securely. And there's a whole um, there's a whole collection of problems in terms of um, being able to have uh, Keystone roles or um, identities which act on behalf of a user but not wanting to actually put the user credentials onto the instance and so you know we're working on improving that and uh, trying to engage with uh, the Keystone developers in order to um, move towards a better solution for that in the, in the longer term. And all of this stuff developed in Python? Uh, yeah everything's in Python. Who'd have thunk yeah. it? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, as I said, we've 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 really tried um, to to conform with uh, existing style convention language wherever possible, right. and you know that's also made life easier for us in many cases because there's a whole load of good stuff um, within the OpenStack um, core projects that we've been able to reuse. Right, it's just coming from a, I'm a sort of Perl guy, so you know, the Perl Python, the hackles get up when I start talking about Python with any passion. <laughs> now, you're talking at the London Developer Day on the 1st of November at London South Bank University. Can you tell us what you're going to be talking about? Or? Yeah, that's right. So um, I think it's planned that I'm going to be giving an overview of um, OpenStack, and I'll basically be giving an introduction to the core projects and what they do um, and how it all ties together. And then I'll give an overview of the Heat project and how that um, how that combines the... the um, uh, the capabilities of the uh, of the 
OpenStack core projects. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to be giving a demo of, um, of OpenStack and Heat and some of the um, some of the cool features of Heat, which it provides. Um, and uh, if all goes to plan, I should also be providing a demonstration of OpenShift running on Heat, running on OpenStack. Um, so that's the plan. Brave man. <laughs> yeah. Brave man. I, I, I've been to some demos recently at VMworld and also at GigaOM where I'm sure it was recorded. I'm positive it was recorded. <laughs> Can't prove it. Positive it was recorded. Yeah, it's one of those things where I dread doing it. I stand on stage and I start in my instance and I just think, what's going to possibly get wrong? But don't worry, I've only got an audience of 700 people. Always yeah, fun. You can I, guarantee I, it's going it's, it's to work 100 times in a row and the one time you need to demonstrate it, it won't work. Well, I had to give a, a, I flew over to Portugal a few weeks ago to give a talk on open source and open source standards and I was... Uh, second on stage after Matt S.A., you know, ex-canonical, writes for the register. And Matt and I went to university together. So he was my warm-up man, which I think he found rather amusing, given the fact that he's Mr. Open Source. And he he got the crowd, the crowd really riled up. And I, I had my slides and my demo all queued up to go. And I got on stage and I had my clicker in my left hand. I, well, the first slide came up and it said, hi, I'm Richard Morrell. And I turned the clicker off and I put it in my pocket. And I just didn't use the slides and didn't use the demo. And I just talked for 35 minutes because I thought if it's going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong in front of the biggest audience I've had in five years. So let's just talk about <laughs> open, open source and make them laugh and have some fun with them and talk about Red Hat and OpenStack and OpenShift and CloudForms and all the goodness and stuff. And they loved it. And no one knew that, you know, no one had a clue. But I, I was looking in the front row and there was the, the, the representative from Red Hat Iberia tearing his hair out because I hadn't used any of the slides or the demo. But never mind, you know, everyone in the room loved it and no one knew that I'd actually gone completely 90 degrees off tangent. So uh, always have a backup plan i didn't i didn't have one no one seemed to notice i think i got away with it so <laughs> unfortunately it's online it's apparently it's online as a youtube video so i'm hoping no one from red hat marketing has actually seen it yet and they don't listen to this podcast so i can tell the whole world right so everyone's looking forward to the london developer day um it's at london south Bank university we do actually have some discount codes available for undergrads and postgrads from academic institutions and universities i think it's like eight or ten quid or something which is less than a round of drinks now so you get a nice goodie bag with a t-shirt and you get to sit down with some of the movers and shakers from the OpenShift project from uh, the Gluster project you get to meet John Mark Walker you get to meet Stephen so you know it's, it's worth a day of your time unfortunately I won't be there because I'm going to be on honeymoon locked in a cottage in the west country but uh, I'll be there in spirit so um, what, one last thing um, to mention is if anyone's interested in trying um, the heat um, project the heat API um, uh, functionality you can try it um, on a laptop um, you can visit our website at heat-api.org um, all the codes on github at github.com forward slash heat-api and uh, there's a script that will do a single load installation of open stack and uh, you should be able to try it out and hopefully evaluate the functionality pretty easily um, if you need any help come and see us in hash heat on freenode and also if you need any help there are actually context links into the openstack wiki which tell you everything you need to know anyway so if you can't find that you shouldn't be using it steve thanks yeah, very so much for making the time today do appreciate it thanks richard cheers
Yeah.